Jennifer Morgan. Good morning. Mm-hmm. How are you? Hi, Spencer. Uh, how are you doing? How was the commute? Uh, I was going to ask how was the commute, but then I forget it was like around, I live the, across the, street, around so the block, right? So you might, have, you might have the shortest <laughs> commute of anybody I think I'm inviting on. Uh, Dennis was on yesterday, lives in Mid- Midlothian, which is, uh, he said, Ennis County. That's like an hour and Ellis 10 County. minutes. Ellis that's, County, excuse I me. Moved, yeah. I moved from Midlothian to Frisco. Did you really? So we probably were neighbors. You might have been neighbors at some point. Yeah, Dennis, <laughs> I think he's he, his family's been out there for a few years. But when I invited him on, I thought he was in Fort Worth. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a hike. And then he told me Midlothian. But actually, realistically, it was probably equidistant, so he still had a big commute. <laughs> uh, but again, thank you for coming in, even if it was a, a short commute. I appreciate you joining me. Absolutely. Happy Friday to Happy you. Happy Friday. Yeah, I appreciate you coming in. We've got uh, a few more hours left in the day, of course. Any big plans for the weekend for you or just laying um, low? Just, just uh, soccer with the grandkids and um, running errands on the weekend, so nothing big. Soccer with the nothing. grandkids. Now, how old are the grandkids? So yeah. I've had, I have three now. Okay. I've been in the business a really long time. Okay, so, okay. Um, so I have an eight-year-old grandson and then two granddaughters that are five and two. Five and two. Well, I've got a four-year-old daughter who started soccer a couple weeks ago as well. So I think we actually have practice tonight, as a matter of fact. So a lot so of fun. fun. Not a whole lot of really strategy <laughs> or skills in that age, but uh, you know, some snacks get brought onto the field. Some girls cry, and it's it's, it's so much fun though. It's it is. it's a blast to watch. Well, anyway, so thanks for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on sure. and uh, joining the podcast. You see, obviously, it's called self-funded with Spencer. Mm-hmm. So the general subject matter will be around self-funding, and the reason I had a broker on to start was. We could start at a very high level, right? What is what is self-funding broadly? And then now we're going to start drilling into some of the moving parts, which is obviously where you come in. And mm-hmm. so I'm excited to talk to you about the TPA space and your role in that and what tra- attracted to you, uh, you to the TPA space. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the meat of the conversation, let's learn a little bit more about mm-hmm. Jennifer, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you know, personal life, professional career, bring us up to present day and uh, just let the audience know who you are. Well, I have been in the business a really long time, so over 30 years in the business, I probably don't, I don't look like I would have grandchildren. No, no, I would not have guessed. I've been in the business that long, but I started out uh, at State Farm. So I was selling uh, auto, home, life, and health to individuals at State Farm for about eight years, eight and a half years, and then I went to the employer side, and I was the HR generalist and benefits manager for Preset Business Products. Okay. Back in the day, I did that in like 2000. Um, did that for, well, no, I did that from 96 to 2000. So four years on the, on the plan sponsor side. Okay. Then I went to work for that company went out of business and I went to work for my broker who was Marsh at the time. Okay. Way back in the day. So this was in the year 2000. Marsh was, Marsh Advantage America was small group. Marsh was mid-market and Mercer was large group. And then during my tenure, my five-year tenure there, we all rolled up in, under the Mercer moniker. Mm-hmm. And then they've since broken that back out again. Okay. But uh, So I started out as Marsh and ended as Mercer, then moved over to Willis Towers Watson for, gosh, 11 years, a stint at CLS Partners and Gallagher before I found my way to Collective Health, which is a, a TPA. Well, yeah, and I, I was obviously, uh, you know, we know each other from, I think we met mm-hmm. at CLS Partners back in the day. I called yeah. on you when I was a, a rep. Um, but I noticed, right, you, you've had some time at some very, very big mm-hmm. brokerages. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, maybe what from coming from the employer side that attracted you to brokerages, and then obviously, now making the shift over to the TPA space, can you walk me through some of the mindset of those transitions? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, having learned from being a plant sponsor, so from that viewpoint, learning employee benefits, self-funding, what it takes from an employer side, 
um, working very close with my consultant at Marsh at the time. It just seemed like a, a pretty natural progression mm-hmm. for my career to move into consulting. I started out as an analyst. So I was the one crunching the numbers, running the marketing, yeah. doing all of that stuff um, under the, the careful watch of a senior consultant that was a lot more experienced. Um, promoted up uh, to run my own book of business. So I had my own set of clients I was responsible for and uh, enjoyed that. You know, I got a promotion to move into Willis. So there was like seven of us that all kind of defected from Mercer <laughs> at the time and went over to Willis and start the practice there. Um, and have always just had a very uh, uh, deep analytical mindset. Yeah. So anytime there's something really complicated, I like to dig in, root cause analysis, process efficiency. Problem solving. Problem yeah. solving. That's my mindset. And so I worked uh, just that lends itself really well to healthcare. And then what drew you away, right? I'd be curious because the broker side is, it's kind of its own thing, right? You spend some time on the broker side. And a lot of people tend to stay or gravitate that towards that for their entire career. Were you producing there at the time? Or no, eventually? I, okay. I, I would help support producers as they would make it rain, bring in new <laughs> business. I was the one that managed the flood, so to speak. Okay. So, yep. um, so a lot of times you need that subject matter expert or something, somebody with a technical expertise to be in that sales conversation. So that's, I would, the producers would bring me in. Well, and then so was it the the transition over into collective health and we'll define what a TPA is and Mm -hmm. all that stuff here in a minute. Was that the draw to go sell? Was that part of that uh, transition for you that was attractive? Sort of. Um, So as a consultant, you have to know everything about everything. You have to break everything down. You have to understand risk management, healthcare economics, all of those things. And those just um, really interest me. So I like to get deep into that. And, And then once you have figured it all out and you can tell your client, you know, why the healthcare system is, is broken. Uh, why, you know, why, why, what's broken about it, why it ended up that way and what to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. I could tell them how to fix it. I couldn't tell them who could fix it. Okay. So who could administer the how? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's was important. That was important to me. So this, this move out of consulting into the TPA world is a, is a way for me to fortify my existing knowledge and understand how the sausage is made behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just fascinating for me. That's so a funny, for inquiring uh, minds, yeah, really yeah. get interested in that. Well, as I say, the, how the sausage is made is that one of those terms that I hear all the time. And you're like, do I really want to know how the sausage is made? Sometimes <laughs> I, may not I'd rather it. just eat the sausage, right? <laughs> um, so we've been saying the, the terminology TPA and obviously mm-hmm. those folks that are in the industry understand what that is, mm-hmm. but why don't we for maybe folks that are less initiated in healthcare or even self-funding, what is a TPA? Let's yeah. start there. Yeah. So it just uh, it, technically it's third party administrator is what that stands for. Okay. So the, uh, your third party administrator is going to be the one that's actually receiving the claim from the physician or the hospital, adjudicating it against the plan of benefits and releasing payment. Okay. So that's just, you know, th- at the most. Well, in the um, self-funded space. Level. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the self-funded space, right? You're, you're almost potentially decoupling people. We, we yes. talked about uh, fully insured with Dennis versus self-funded. Mm-hmm. Most people understand fully insured. I go to Blue Cross. They do everything for me. Mm-hmm. We start pulling apart uh, the pieces when we're self-funded and the administrator or the TPA is performing that function. Like you said, processing claims, adjudicating those claims. What else kind of are you doing in the process to make the plan function? Yeah. Um, so a TPA is gonna, going to provide not only claims adjudication, but customer service. Mm-hmm. So answering questions uh, from the plan membership, you know, is this covered? How did this 
how did my plan of benefits apply to this claim? Do I really owe what I got a bill for? <laughs> you know, so a lot of customer service questions. There's um, utilization review and disease management all the, are all functions of a TPA. You can, if, if you're with a carrier, that's all under one roof. If you are, you know, really, um, I don't know, a critical thinker like me, where you like to manage your own supply chain, yeah. you want visibility into end-to-end visibility into everything that's happening from the time someone goes to the doctor to the time it's paid at the end, then you probably will want to break away from a, a, a big carrier model and use a third-party administrator where you have a little bit more visibility and the uh, flexibility and configurability of your plan strategy. Mm-hmm. So you can introduce different different programs and have it all work together versus only buying what's available through a third party, you know, a national carrier. Well, I like that you talked about managing that supply chain yourself. I think mm-hmm. that's an excellent way to put it because when mm-hmm. you're talking about building a self-funded plan, those those moving parts, somebody has to connect them. Somebody has to be the conduit between the stop-loss carrier and the PBM if that's carved out. Obviously, yeah. the plan sponsor you mentioned as well, managing the plan design. I heard a, 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 a TPA rep a, a while ago utilize the term uh, connective tissue. And I kind of like mm-hmm. that. Do you feel like that's a appropriate way to put it? You are that, that entity that brings everything together, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating way to think about it. And for those folks, again, that aren't really accustomed to this space, they don't understand necessarily that that TPA is performing all of these functions and it can be, you know, an independent entity. Um, so, you know, let's maybe say other TPAs, right, that folks have, have heard about, um, UMR, Maritain, of course, if you are with a BUCA, we've defined that yesterday, mm-hmm. Blue Cross United, Cigna, Aetna, they all right. do various functions like that. But, you know, talk to me about collective health, right? Mm-hmm. This uh, fairly new name. I think you said you guys have been in business seven years, mm-hmm. correct, in the That's industry, right. but obviously doing something a lot different than your traditional TPA model. So help me understand those differentiators. Yeah, I think it's probably the biggest difference would be the technology. So if you're going to improve a process, you're not going to come up with a new manual way to handle it. You're not mm-hmm. going to come up with a new form and triplicate with carbon paper, you know. I don't know. This is insurance, yeah, right? I yeah. feel like maybe that's the inclination. Well, sometimes. maybe that's the maybe that's part of the problem. There's sure. not the technology, you know, the explosion of technology mm-hmm. didn't really filter into the insurance industry or healthcare industry. Um, like it should have, sure. and, and all the little um, niche uh, technology platforms that benefit hospitals, benefit insurance companies or TPAs, um, we're all operating in silos. So to have a modern technology platform built with um, open architecture that can weave all the pieces together seamlessly mm-hmm. just makes the, op- the operations of a health plan much more efficient and it makes the member experience much more efficient as well. So if you're a, a very innovative, forward-thinking employer and you want to have a line of sight into all the operations of your plan, so you may carve out, go to a TPA, put together the plan yourself, and then you can see how it all functions together, but you don't want it to be um, you don't want it to be the same fragmented experience yeah. that you had with a national carrier. Yeah. You may want the member to have all the different programs on one platform. You may want to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to manage risk and identify risk earlier so you can get involved with the patient's healthcare journey a little sooner and then steer steer to quality and things like that. So those are all things that I think um, have made the newer age of digital health solutions so interesting and compelling because they're not built on legacy mainframe systems. Mm-hmm. They're built, you know, cloud-based 
platform, uh, you know, structured as a platform where everything works together. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, that's a fantastic, well, you're, you're, you're speaking to somebody that uh, <laughs> is, is constantly battling against that outdated notion, I think, of that technology doesn't necessarily fit in the space, or maybe we're slow adopters of that space. Yeah, we, we feel that all the time at PlanSite, where you mentioned platform, right, and using technology to maybe create efficiencies in spaces that they currently don't exist, or people have just got accustomed to doing things a certain way, just simply because they're used to it. So you're preaching to the choir a little bit there. Um, you mentioned uh, open architecture. Kind of describe to me a little bit more about that. Is there um, connectivity through APIs with different systems out there that you guys are doing? Yeah. So, um, so when I when I talk about that, I'm talking about the ability to integrate with the different digital health solutions and leverage the data that's that's available. There's so much data going on all around us, mm-hmm. and if we can just harness all that in one platform and analyze it better then can't we be so much more efficient? Can't we manage population health so much more efficient if we know everything that's going on in the pa- that, that's touching the patient? So, um, so when you think of, let's take Livongo, for example. They do a great job managing diabetes, okay. right? Let's just use them for example. If we have a, a two-way integration where we're taking engagement data and utilization data, taking all of that from them, putting it in our system and in our risk uh, profile, then we can fine tune and refine what's going on in that person's life and, and identify better ways to engage earlier mm-hmm. so that you get the best possible outcome. So having open architecture, all the, the tech stack that is our platform all works together. It's built to work together seamlessly versus siloed applications that only integrate through batch processes, yeah, maybe yeah. once a week or overnight. Yeah. You're talking about open, uh, an open architecture where it's built for all these different, you know, the, the tech in our stack to work together seamlessly and be able to integrate utilization data from an out, a third-party um, health plan program or digital health solution, use that data to all feed into our risk model. Okay. So it's just all working together. In a, in a well, and you're certainly speaking my language, and I knew there's a reason why I wanted you to come come on in first. Um, the last thing I'd like to touch on about the collective health uh, a, a subject you mentioned earlier, machine learning, AI, I feel like mm-hmm. those are subjects that get bandied about a lot. So yeah. tell me what it means to you or how you guys are applying machine learning to, is it predictive modeling, uh, perhaps, or some other other avenues that you're using it as well? Yeah, so, uh, so true, true machine learning is where it's not just an if-then statement. If they present with this condition, then we should recommend this. It's not just if then. Mm-hmm. It's actually where the technology teaches itself. Okay. So it will see a certain situation and recommend a, 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 the next step, and then it gets feedback. So our our population health team, our care navigation team, our member advocates, everybody is entering information to the system that's captured. So you get this full service 360 feedback that makes the machine even smarter. So with each passing day, it's going to know, okay, next time I see this set of circumstances, this will be the right next step. It's pretty interesting. That's really, it's really cool, right? And I think, yeah, you hear that um, all over the place nowadays and everybody talks about AI. Some things may or may not be AI and some things just get labeled AI. But I mean, mm-hmm. that, I would have absolutely put that in that bucket. If you're, if you're constantly getting a continual feedback loop of improving the learning, that absolutely that fits in that, the model of machine learning. So I love it. And maybe that we've already answered my next question mm-hmm. uh, to a degree. But when we talked about TPA model or true independent TPA like like mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. versus what we traditionally think of as the ASO model. So the admin services model only with the BUCAs. So 
tell me what's what makes that kind of the legacy and potentially you know old school way of doing things versus what you guys are doing today. Yeah. So if you're gonna have, so if when you hear the term ASO, that means you're with a national carrier and you're just using their administrative services to pay claims. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not buying their insurance. So yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so with a TPA, it's the same thing. It's still administrative services only because it's not insurance. You're you're paying the claims as they happen versus paying a premium and letting the premium pay for the claims. Um, so it's just uh, terminology in the industry. ASO typically means that you're with a national carrier platform. TPA means the same services, just with an independent third party administrator that's mm-hmm. not an insurance company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you think, you know, when you go out and sort of discuss the the differences or the advantages of an independent TPA versus the traditional model that's tied to a carrier, are there certain things that you, you use in that discussion process to really benchmark yourself against that, that model? Yeah, I would say um, configurability and flexibility. When you get jumbo insurance companies that are huge conglomerates, they can't turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. So it's that uh, being able to be flexible, configurable to your particular strategy, what's right for your company, versus having to just buy services that are available within that um, carrier platform. So a lot more control, a lot more choice. uh, Visibility, configurability, flexibility, um, and and then you can carve out. So you can use different stop-loss carriers, you can use different digital health platforms, but yet they all look like they're coming from one ecosystem. Mm So it's just a, a well, that's that's what I, I, you know, coming from predominantly the stop loss world, I did spend some time on the broker side as well and had some experience with independent TPAs. But as a stop loss uh, carrier, I always appreciated the role that an independent TPA played in the process because, hey, you guys, again, connect every, all the moving parts. But if one of the moving parts wasn't working, you have options to replace it. You can replace the stop loss. You could replace the PBM, other population health management solutions, or even networks uh, potentially as well. And you don't have to change the person that's you know, managing the day-to-day quarterbacking of the plan. And so I really appreciate that. And that is a level of flexibility, obviously, that doesn't exist if you go with the carrier model. Right. So I, mean, it's a, I certainly appreciate what you guys do. And again, that's why I was mm-hmm. very thankful for you to come on. Um, so walk me through, I asked Dennis this question a little bit uh, the other day in terms of a broker transitioning to self-funding from a fully insured plan. Walk me through some of the things that you're working with your advisor and their employer to be thinking about transitioning from that fully insured environment to being self-funded. Yeah, it takes um, it takes a, a, a little bit uh, more sophistication, I'll have to say, on the part of the employer, uh, mainly for their finance team. So the the day to day life of a, a benefits administrator uh, is probably not going to look that much different because they're still fielding employee questions. They're still getting to make decisions about plan design, like my is my deductible going to go up or not. So that part is fairly the same. It's the it's the um, you know it's basically a, a financing exercise. Sure. So instead of writing a check for your premium every month. And then that's all you see as far as the finance, financials of the plan. Now you're only paying your fixed cost, so your administrative expenses, your stop-loss expenses, you're paying those every month, mm-hmm. and then you pay claims as they happen. Mm-hmm. So in you know, if you don't have as many claims as projected, you win. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you keep that money. Right, so you, right. budget, you budget. You may budget the same, like your fully insured premium may have been 10000 a month. You still want to budget 10000 a month for a self-funded plan, but you don't part with the money if the claims don't materialize. Exactly. So you get to hold on to it. But you also have visibility into volatility. Mm-hmm. So what if your claims are 15000 because you had a big hospital claim that month? In a fully insured arrangement, you would only pay your 10, your premium. In a self-funded arrangement, you're going to pay the 15, 
because you, you're responsible for the claims liability. And then you've got stop loss, you know, to protect you from big losses, either for by an individual or for the whole plan for aggregate coverage. And so from, uh, you know, a, a logistical standpoint on the ground, right, uh, talk me to me about frequency and payments of claims. How, how continuous is the processing in that? How frequent are the, you know, you mentioned the volatility. Is it a monthly basis for you guys? Is it biweekly? What, how often are, are the claims being paid? Daily. Daily. Okay. Claims are paid daily. Now, we, we pay them and process the claim, but fund on a weekly basis. So you seed, so from an employer standpoint, you may seed your claims payment account with a certain amount of money, and then claims are paid from that, and then you get a, an invoice to replenish that account mm-hmm. every week. So yeah, claims are paid on a daily basis. Well, and that, obviously those are the claims that um, maybe are a little easier to process. Talk to me about some claims that require added uh, you know, eligibility proof or I'm really digging in deep to making sure that claim is appropriate. Do you guys obviously do some auditing like that as oh, well? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of that happens with the, with the advancement of technology. A lot of that's going to happen as the claim is filed. So as soon as it's filed, there are some, uh, you know, some checks and balances that to make sure that you're billing for an eligible person, mm-hmm. that you are complying with medical policy, meaning um, you're not going to bill me for two office visits in the same day. You're not going to bill me for a duplicate claim. Sure. You're not going to bill me for one particular procedure code and then bill me again with a claim modifier code where it looks like two different claims. Yeah. We're going to weed that stuff okay. out, good, you good, know. Good. So the predatory billing practices, things like that, are caught from the very beginning. Well, and that's when, you know, uh, we'll kind of this lead, will lead into the next question. I'd love to hear some of the misconceptions that you hear in this industry. But one of the misconceptions that I perceived from my, my end of the table was um, auto adjudication is a good thing, right? We process claims very quickly mm-hmm. and we get, you know, we're, they're always going to be processed quickly. and You don't even have to think about it. Well, you start realizing, well, let's unpack that a little bit. Maybe I do want to think about it as an employer. Maybe if there is a $250,000 claim that gets auto adjudicated, I probably want somebody to at least have a second set of eyes scrutinizing that. So I'm assuming you guys do some, some of that as well, really digging in to go, whoa, well, hold on. Let's not just process this. Let's look at it a little bit further, correct? Yes, 100%. And that is, that is I would say, auto adjudication is a cuss word in the, in the okay. consulting, <laughs> in the like consulting that. industry. Yeah. Um, that's typically bad because the thought is if you – pay it automatically, then you're not scrutinizing it enough mm-hmm. and you're going to miss things. That's the thought. Well, not to mention you have to claw it back later, right? If you, you discover it was, you know, an yeah. ineligible claim, now you've got to go find the money and pull it back from people that are not going to be very happy That's about that fun. as well. That's not fun at all. So misconceptions though, from your other end. So that, that was a misconception that I perceived, right? Tell me some mm-hmm. other misconceptions that you think people have about the self-funded industry or maybe even TPAs more specifically. Yeah, I think just to generalize 30,000 feet, the, the thought was when you, the difference between working with a national carrier versus a TPA, you lose a level of sophistication. Mm-hmm. So the experience you have in dealing with a TPA would, uh, again, high level, mm-hmm. old school, mm-hmm. I've been around a long time, was that you're going to lose the sophistication. You're not going to have critical thinkers. You're not going to have the best and brightest um, at a TPA. And so it just seems a little bit more manual and clunky and things like that. So configurability and flexibility doesn't always mean efficiency. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. Um, so I think that was a thought. So to get something that's a little bit more fully baked and running like a well-oiled machine, you would have to go use a national carry for that because they've got this down, right? Okay. And I think that's changed. The past probably five, maybe seven years is we've seen the rise of the super TPA. So where TPAs in the in the olden days 
were not as sophisticated, didn't employ maybe the best and brightest. Let's just be honest. <laughs> um, they're bright, very bright people, obviously, but um, it just maybe your account manager wasn't the best and brightest. And that's evolved. So, so TPAs have now figured that out. They're adopting better technology practices. They are employing smarter, bigger, brighter people, mm-hmm. you know. And so that experience is now on par. Yeah. You can go away from a national carrier platform, choose a TPA. They're going to have great technology. They're going to have great customer service. It's elevating and elevating and evolving over time to where these big super TPAs have as good, if not better, of an experience as you would have through a national carrier. Yeah, and I I think I've seen that from the outside looking in as well. I've seen a number of TPAs uh, in the last few years kind of pop up and really be driven uh, by technology, um, mm-hmm. you know, not, don't have to name any names, but I do think there's a lot of emphasis because again, you guys are getting access to so much data. There's so much useful stuff that can be done with that data, whether or not it's looking at it in aggregate and looking at industry trends and identifying them as they happen and preventing claims and those sorts of things. But even just like you said, coordinating the data as well, all, I feel like everything is driven around data. I mean, do you think that's really what's going to drive us forward in the industry is digging deep and predictive modeling, preventing claims, identifying them before they happen. That's really what a a TPA is doing, a modern day TPA is doing today, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, in my mind, I'm a data geek. I love, love data and knowledge and insight and um, I like making data driven decisions. So I think, yes, I think data and information is, is key to making this better for everyone in the future. I mean, with collective health, it's uh, we have a, a mission-driven purpose, and it's to help all of all Americans have a, a better healthcare experience. So we want you to understand, navigate, and pay for your healthcare in a much easier way. That's the whole the whole platform. Well, and so uh, well, let's uh, drill into that a little bit. I think so. Perfect size group for you, a perfect scenario. Who is the best fit for a collective health? Right? Who who do you guys? derive the most benefit when you place uh, the business is placed with you or do they perceive the most benefit of, of going with you versus yeah, one of your competitors? Yeah. So I think, um, I think it's probably our shining star is that member experience and our net promoter score. So we survey anybody that we have contact with any of our membership mm-hmm. and we're running at, um, I think above 70 on a routine basis. It's above 70 NPS, which is a very punishing metric. It's hard to achieve at a 70 NPS because you have to give us on a scale of of one to 10, you have to give us a nine or a 10 satisfaction score for us to get a point. Okay. Okay. If you get a seven or eight, you get no points points. on the NPS format methodology. And if you get a one through a six, which a six could be not all that bad. Serviceable, right? Serviceable. Yeah. Yeah. But one to six, you get a minus a point. So it's a very punishing metric. Okay. Anybody that uses NPS methodology, it's hard to achieve a high score. And we're running above 70, um, even into the 80s on most months, like when the pandemic hit. And we were fielding all these questions and helping navigate people to the right care and testing centers and all of that. Our NPS shot through the roof because people appreciated so much having an advocate on their side, guiding them through the process. Yeah. So that level, that service model is, is so important. Um, looking at the NPS, so important on customer satisfaction. When you have a happy employee, what are you going to get from that? You're going to get more engagement. They're going to be willing to listen and take advisement on what they should do to manage their health care. Most people have said, well, if my doctor says I need this, then I don't want some insurance company telling me that I can't have right, it. Right. They don't like that. And so, um, so when you have a, a much happier, engaged employee, 
that's getting great customer service, they're going to be more willing to listen to that and, and let you help navigate them, which equates to better outcomes, which equates to lower cost. Yeah, which is what we all are, are hoping for, right? Is that ultimately you don't want to jeopardize the quality of the care for the price, but yeah. you know there needs to be a little bit more insight and conscientiousness of the, the buyer as to what they're actually purchasing. And that's difficult for the average person to navigate through our healthcare system to even go, well, where do I go? One, what do I need to get as a procedure? Who's going to help me? And then how much is it going to cost? I don't think anybody can answer that question because of the, I think the veil that really sort of is, is sitting over all of, all of our healthcare industry. So I appreciate the, the role. Are you guys doing some steerage as well? And, you know, sort of recommendations of providers, if somebody's uh, pre-qualifying for a procedure, you guys are helping that member navigate the system? Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. So uh, we are, our particular model is uh, we have uh, member advocates that deliver a concierge-like customer service experience. So uh, you may call up and say, I got, I got five bills. I don't know what I owe, if I owe any of it. I don't understand what's going on. They'll, they'll say, well, send me all of that. Can you fax it, email it, copy it, take a picture of it and text it to me? However you can get it to me, let me take this off your plate. If anybody's going to have a bad day, we want it to be us, Fair not enough. the member. I like that. Yep. <laughs> so, so send me everything. I'll figure it out, and I'll call you back. We try to handle it while they're on the phone because that's the coachable moment when they've taken time out of their day to call us. So we try to handle it at, if we can. Uh, but a lot of times it's complicated and we have to go figure it out and then call you back. So we'll set up a time to call you back. That's a whole different level of customer experience than, than you can get anywhere else. And so we pride ourselves on that. And then we couple that with care navigation, so a team of experts. So we lead with a licensed clinical social worker and a pharmacist. Uh, and then we backfill with nurses, doctors, dietitians uh, that can pretty much handle anything that a, a patient's going to go through for whatever their healthcare journey is, whatever their diagnosis is. We've got somebody on the team that's going to be able to fine tune that and give them just the right guidance. And uh, th so doing it that way, we believe, is the best way to approach a population health strategy because only 20% of the outcomes of your health event have to do with the care you receive in the clinic. Okay. 80% of the outcomes are depending on your lifestyle. Yep. So how you manage your condition while you're at home. So a nurse isn't trained to think outside the clinic walls. So when you have a population health approach that's led by a nurse, we think you're missing a lot of those social determinants of health that make such a big difference in the overall outcome. So for that reason, we've structured our team to address social determinants of health first and pharmacy first because medication mismanagement is usually the number one reason you get readmitted to a hospital. So not taking, not adherent to the medication yeah. protocols, Wind pill care. splitting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we structure our team in that way. And they're also trained to understand the benefits. So how are your benefits going to apply to this claim? So you don't get toggled back and forth between your claim at your member advocate and your care navigation team. Once you are on, you know, being managed by the care navigation team, they handle your benefit questions too. So it just, again, it's all about seamless experience. Well, so you mentioned the term super TPA, and I, th I certainly think that that category uh, fits for you guys because it does feel like you play a lot more active role in a lot of the, the management of care and those sorts of things, which I think really is what you need. If you're going to go self-funded, I think a lot of employers that maybe have dipped their toes in it or are a little bit reticent to, to, to become self-funded, 
they're going, well, who's going to manage all this stuff if I move it away from my, my UHC card or my Blue Cross card? Who's going to help me with these things? Just having that reassurance that somebody really is going to guide you through that, um, I think is going to be valuable for that, that confidence level to, to transition from self-funding. So is there anybody maybe that's not the appropriate fit, right? Because I think we all want to be all things, all people sometimes, mm-hmm. but there are some groups that just really that doesn't fit our model. So, you know, who would say if it was come to you and they're like, I don't really believe this is the appropriate right type of group. What would that profile look like? Um, I think uh, if you're risk adverse, you don't have the sophistication in your finance team to handle the volatility and budget for it, mm-hmm. then you may feel more comfortable fully insuring and, and just marketing, you know, who's going to give you the best fully insured rate. Um, so, but, you know, if, if, that's, if that's your mindset, then probably stay fully insured. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there's premium taxes and all that built into a fully insured, so it can be more efficient to self-fund because you, you, there's less taxes. You strip out some of those, you yeah. You strip out yeah. some of the taxes, exactly. Um, and you only fund claims as they happen. So from a... a finance efficiency, it is better to be self-funded, but you're going to need to have your cash flow. So, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're strapped for cash, if you can't handle the volatility, then you should probably stay self-funded. You can structure a self-funded account to feel fully insured, depending on your stop loss, which you've covered in yes, all of yes, your, yes. all of your level uh, funding previous, and aggregate yes. accommodation that's and right. all those things. Yeah. And I think that's something to really consider too, is you don't have to have it be just completely a dramatic change overnight. There is a, there is a baby step. You know, I even, you know, support sometimes the transition with your current fully insured carrier to be bundled self-funded for a couple of years, just to understand it. That's, That's there's no right way to skin a cat. And I think it's important to understand that just because somebody comes to you and says, this is the only solution that's appropriate for everybody. They're obviously just trying to sell you something. And that's what the goal with this is to be objective uh, as much as I can, of course, objective to um, what is best what is best in class solutions, what is appropriate for the most people, but it's not always going to be appropriate for everybody. There's not a silver bullet. No. The, the, you know, what I used to, like I said earlier, I used to be tell them, you know, this is what's wrong with the system. This is why it happened. This is how you fix it. Mm-hmm. But that how you fix it is going to be different for every single client. Exactly. Because it's based on their buying style, how they're incorporated, what's what they value as an organization, what their organizational goals are, and the needs of their population. You might have a population of a thousand twenty-five-year-old males. <laughs> You're going to need something completely different sure, sure. than if you've got a population of fifty percent, you know, childbearing females and fifty percent males over the age of fifty. Then statistically, you get a whole different ballgame. So there's not a, a, a one solution. It really requires a good evaluation by a, a consultant mm-hmm. to tell you what's the best strategy for your organization. Yeah. And those advisors are, are critical in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, you know, without knowing what to do and where to look, it's difficult to make decisions. You mentioned, you know, what is your, what is your demographics of your, your group look like? You know, mm-hmm. is it a rural population or is access to care? There's all sorts of things when you start peeling back the layers of the onion that you can get being self-funded, that you can start identifying risk drivers and cost drivers and those sorts of things that you don't necessarily get when you when you stay fully insured. Doesn't mean, again, that's the right fit for you, but how can you really dig in and, and, and solve problems if you can't see where the problems are actually coming from in the first place? That's exactly right. So, um, you know, I'll ask you this. I, 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 I want to try to ask this of everybody because I think that one of the biggest goals of this podcast is just education in the marketplace. When I was coming up, I got introduced to stop loss and self-funding. And it wasn't until my 30s. I had, I had no idea about it. 
it became a passion of mine, but I didn't know where to find information. And it's difficult sometimes to find information. So let's have conversations like this that don't necessarily have any sales, uh, you know, process attached. I'm not trying to sell a product. I want people to understand this marketplace. Do you think, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction, but do you think there's still a long ways to go in sort of terms of general understanding of what self-funding is? Yeah, probably, probably so. I, I would say most, and, and it depends on where the company is sitest. Mm-hmm. So you've got California employers that don't self-fund until they get over well over 1,500, 2,000 lives, and they'll still be fully insured. Yeah. Well, they have, lo- so they have laws in place, right? Of like, I think under 200 lives, it cannot even be self-funded, I, I believe is the rule. Maybe I could be, uh, somebody fact check me, but I think they do actually have some very strict size limitations on even who's allowed to self-fund, which is a, you know, a different conversation, but you're right. It can be very geographic specific yeah. as well. Yeah. The mindset of employers in California is very different than the mindset of employers in New York or Texas. In Texas, we typically start self-funding at about 500 employees. Mm-hmm. You're typically big enough at that point to handle the sophistication of the finance piece, the volatility of claims. You can budget for it and, and all of that. You're not going to have that fourth quarter surprise that sinks the company, bankrupts the company, yep. you know. Yep. Um, so 500 usually is that kind of that rule of thumb good time to start considering self-funding some companies that have you know good cash flow and sophistication do it much much smaller down to maybe 50 employees oh yeah i've seen 50 employees i mean level funded sometimes as is kind of their transitionary product but absolutely that's one thing i always try to stress is you can be a hundred lives and as long as you have those parameters in place like you said uh, good cash flow mm-hmm. certain level of sophistication there's nothing preventing a hundred life group from doing the same things that a 10,000 life group does. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, if anything I could stress is like, yeah. like guys start learning, start considering and when the time is right, work with your advisor, of course, to explore your options. Mm-hmm. But I think people would be surprised that there's so many solutions out there for small and mid market employers nowadays that you're really not losing anything at your size necessarily. So can you put on uh, your, uh, you know, futuristic looking glasses mm-hmm. and tell me um, next five or 10 years, where do you think this industry is going to change? Gosh, depends on who you talk to. Sure. So there's, you know, there's uh, a good report put out last year, I think, from McKinsey that analyzed the healthcare industry and what health plan administration was going to look like. And they envision, and I think they were focused not not so much on the employer point of view, but the healthcare provider point of view, they envisioned a more um, um, collaborative ecosystem of partners that all work together. So okay. if you think ACO, mm-hmm. think accountable care organization, which are healthcare delivery, that's the healthcare delivery system that has a primary care, a specialist, um, and labs all in one environment under one roof so they can all work in there's that interoperability mm-hmm. um, that's you know th- that's what McKinsey envisioned okay. was that we would have more seasoned ecosystems where all the different players work together off the same record okay so from a healthcare delivery standpoint you need a same chart you need technology for everybody to have right. so you got to have this explosion of technology so help you know physicians need to know what other physicians are doing with that same patient so you got to have interoperability and collaboration there. And then from a health plan operations standpoint, you need a seasoned ec- ecosystem of providers, digital health solutions, TPA, that can bring all that, harness all that data mm-hmm. into one platform. So the member knows everything that they've, they don't have to have 10 apps on their phone to know right. how to manage their health care. They have one phone number, one app 
of all the players working together. So you can think of like a vendor summit. A lot of innovative benefit leaders were having a vendor summit once a year to bring everybody to the table, make sure everybody was working toward the same goal. Mm-hmm. What if that could happen on a monthly basis? What if every month everybody was working together to achieve the same goal? Right. So I think that um, e- ecosystem of partners all working together off the same record is going to be something that could really benefit the system going forward. Yeah, and I, th- I do think uh, with that, right, there's the challenge because we can't get everybody to agree on, well, what's the best form of this record or what's the best representation of something? Who wins that race, right? If we've got to go to one sort of standard, is it a culmination of everybody's standards and we pick the best in class and try to glue it together or does somebody win that race as well? But I can't. I, I tell you every time I would go to the doctor or with the family, you know, you're filling out the same forms over and over and over again. I think if somebody solves that, that problem, <laughs> right, it's like, why do I have to keep filling out the exact same form every time I walk in the office. But I think it drives at a deeper problem, right? Is there's not that you said interoperability, which I love that word. There's not something connecting, you know, the vertical integration of your care together. So you keep having redundant. It's very fragmented. It's a a disparate system. Very siloed, all kinds of different um, applications and technologies, and none of them are all working together. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's a miss. There's so much missed when we don't have a good field of view for for that everything that's happened with that patient. So the transparency, visibility sure. into that end-to-end uh, journey is so important. And so, uh, you know, with the recent legislation in December about price transparency mm-hmm. and hospitals have to disclose and plan sponsors have to make sure that the patient has access to what the cost is going to be before they go to see the doctor, that's going to be huge. I don't... I think that healthcare itself is inelastic. So if you're if you're a, a an economic, oh, yeah. if you love economics, I'll go back and to you economics love one hundred and one in college. Inelastic and elastic demand. Yes, I, I remember right. all that stuff. So yeah. healthcare is inelastic. So when my five year old has a high fever in the middle of the night, am I going to stop and go? Hmm, let me see what this would cost here versus here versus there. No, mm-hmm. you don't purchase healthcare in that way. You purchase it in a reactive emotional way. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know that price transparency is going to get the result from the member, that behavioral change on the member that we hope it would, mm-hmm. but I think that it can change treat, recommended treatment protocols. Sure. And there was a study done where um, a, an ACO provided price transparency to the physician at the time they were tr- making, um, a, a recommend, recommending a yeah, treatment plan. Yeah. And um, they would have access they, on their phone to the cost of an MRI versus a CT scan okay. or, or versus like a normal X-ray. And when they saw the cost differential between getting an MRI and versus getting a normal X-ray, they were like, well, I can tell everything I need to know from an X-ray for a lot cheaper cost. Sure. So they saw this huge shift away from MRIs to just regular x-rays because the physician had access to prices at the time. Isn't that fascinating? You, you presume, obviously your doctor's acting in your own, you presume they're acting in your best interest, right? And the appropriate care regardless of cost, but just having a doctor being unaware of the disparity of the cost between an MRI and an x-ray and showing them that in real time, like you said, you would presume your doctor knows this information already, right? If I'm just somebody that goes to the doctor and he tells me I need an MRI, I, I guess I need an MRI, right? You don't right. realize that they may not even be aware of a 10 or 20x differential in pricing 
and you, like you said, you can have the same outcome with what they need from an x-ray. It's yeah. fascinating to think Isn't your doctor that? doesn't always know that information. That's right. They don't. They have no idea what things cost. Yeah. They do. have no idea. You, yeah. All right. Well, that's, we could probably spend another <laughs> podcast about that. But so, yeah, let, kind of, let's wrap things up. Last question I, I'd like to leave uh, open uh, for you is, what do you want the folks to be left with? People that have, have stuck through the, the conversation today, we're talking about TPA, the third party administrator and your role in self-funding. If you could leave the folks with anything, what are the things that you want them to remember? Um, not to be afraid of it. Um, I think that, you know, the, the biggest thing that you lose by not trying something new is it, being stuck with the status quo is mm -hmm. a bigger killer on your outcomes than trying something new and failing. Don't be afraid to fail. We've always done it that way, right? Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a killer, and I think that's a great way to leave it. Is be open to the idea. There's so many solutions out there if you know where to look. Obviously, uh, you know one place to look now with Jennifer at Collective Health. But ask your advisor, see what's out there, and you know you realize pretty quickly that you know if you have a problem, there's a solution out there to solve it. So, Jennifer, I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you again, uh, PlanSight for the sponsorship and VentureX for the studio. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. Great to Bye, see Jennifer. you, Spencer. Bye.